welcome to one of our mini episodes, which we do when we just can't wait to bring you an author interview. This time around, it's Mandy Robertum with another brilliant historical novel set in the heart of a Berlin on the brink of war. Mandy is no stranger to an exciting and varied career, having worked as both a journalist and a midwife before settling, for now, on a career in writing. And she brings these experiences into her writing, as you'll hear in the interview. The Berlin Girl follows Georgie, a foreign correspondent reporting on the experience of life in 1938 Berlin, as she navigates the increasingly tense world around her. I caught up with Mandy to discuss this great tale of freedom, friendship and survival. Here she is reading a short excerpt from the book. The journey north from Tempelhof took them through residential streets and then into the heart of bustling Berlin. Max rode in the taxi's front seat, talking with the driver who had a decent grasp of English, while Georgie was happily alone in the back, tasting the air through the open window and enjoying the breeze on her cheeks. A chance to absorb, to take in the extraordinary sights. Extraordinary it was in overshadowing Georgie's last view of the city in August 1936, when the world's athletes had descended upon the unlikely choice of Berlin as host of the Olympic Games. Back then, the pomp and ceremony had been enough of an eye-opener. Streets around the city and the specially built stadium, designed to seat 100,000 spectators, were swamped with Nazi insignia, clean lines of flags that seemed programmed to flutter by order. Everything was precise and in its place. Pristine. The world was watching as the Nazis orchestrated their best show at the opening ceremony, a Wagnerian display of music and procession under the silver cloud of the imposing master airship, the Hindenburg, which hovered above, a tense build-up to when Hitler himself arrived in the arena with all the kudos of an emperor and strode up to his viewing box. Two years on, the sheen was gone and the Berlin in front of George's eyes was astonishing in a different vein. It was still ordered, the wide impressive streets designed in a distinct neat lines and the buildings grandiose and imposing but there was no mask anymore, no need to hide what the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazis, were about. Their determination to dominate was unabashed. That much was clear from the imposing columns that came into view as the taxi approached and then turned into the capital's most prominent thoroughfare, Jünter in Linden. Scores of white pillars, four abreast, swept down the entire length of the boulevard, many topped with the eagle emblem of the Nazi insignia, some white, some gold, blinding in the midday glare. It was no accident that Georgie needed to look upwards at these towering symbols of power, like the pictures of ancient Rome she remembered from her history books. That phrase, delusions of grandeur, came immediately to mind. It was an uneasy feeling, and one she would be keeping to herself. Hello, Mandy, and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. Thanks for having me. I guess the best way to kick off is to ask you to tell me about the book. So the book is set in sort of between about July 1938 and September 1939. So it's a year and a little bit before war broke out. And it's set in Berlin, being the Berlin girl. And it's about a pair of British journalists that get posted to Berlin thinking it's their big chance to shine in the foreign correspondence world and about what they encounter and the propaganda that they encounter 
and some of the dark secrets that the Nazis have yet to unveil on the world. I really love this book and thought that actually it was a really interesting take on the that time period. It was a perspective I hadn't seen before, especially with the questions about propaganda and censorship and stuff like that. What made you interested in writing it from that angle? I think as a writer, you're always trying to look for a new angle because World War II fiction is so popular and there's a lot of books out there. For me, I was a journalist many, many years ago before I became a midwife and then then a writer. So I think it sort of never left me. Every journalist, every writer dreams about being that glamorous foreign correspondent. Um, I wasn't. (laughs) I was just a local newspaper journalist. But it still holds that enticement. And when you read the diaries of foreign correspondents, they do seem to be, they're not jetting about, they're going by train mostly, but it seems a much more glamorous life, even though it was very hard work and there were all these barriers against them, women in particular. Yeah, that's one thing that I wanted to ask about, actually, was what challenges do you think Georgie, as a female writer at that time, would have faced compared to maybe someone in a similar position now? Is that something that you wanted to bring to the story? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were, there was a time when um, if you were a married foreign correspondent as a female, you had to travel under your husband's passport still. I mean, crazy. We wouldn't just, we wouldn't think of that now. And I grew up with, you know, Kate Aidy on the television and now there's Ola Guerin and we don't, we don't blink. We don't blink at the woman being uh, in that situation but then they had to forsake a lot. They, some of them had children, but they weren't often with their children. They had to forsake a lot and they had to be very hard and wily and full of guile. But also, you know, they had to dress well and they had to use their womanly guile at the same time. So they had to be all things to all people and good at writing, and good at reporting as well. I think that was quite interesting, actually, to have the two correspondents as they were. You had Max, who had his very facts first approach to journalism and then Georgie was telling the more human side. What is proven by the book is really that the human side, it fills in all those gaps. Something that was interesting in that is just the way that they play off each other when they're talking to each other. Did you write that relationship specifically for those reasons? I don't plan an awful lot. I have a synopsis which my editor and I discuss and, you know, she says, yeah, this is great. We like that. But it literally is probably about two pages long. And then beyond that, I don't do post-it notes. I don't do, I might scribble little scenes in my book. I'm very old fashioned. I don't do it on, I don't, I write on screen. I write with a laptop, but I don't plan. So I have a, a notebook for every novel. And basically, I just scribbled little scenes in there if they come into my head in in bed or in the morning or something. But mostly, I just literally open up the laptop and go. And that's flying by the seat of your pants, which can (laughs) work on some days and some days can be like treading through treacle. So where inspiration come from then if you're just going for it every day? Quite annoyingly, a lot of little things come into me when I'm just trying to settle down in bed at night to go to sleep. And then bing, so I've got a notebook beside me um, on the bed so I can scribble things down and get them out of my head. It's usually conversations and scenes that come to me, mostly rather than big ideas. So I will just start playing a scene in my head and I'm quite 
yeah, I'd like, love one day I'd like to have a go at a screenplay or a script because I, I'm quite conversation-led, I think. I like a sort of quirky, Cary Grant type of Catherine Hepburn sparkiness between feisty women and uh, who always get the better of the men. <laughs> and that's something that definitely comes across in the novel because, you ha- you know, you mentioned it earlier, women using their wiles to aid their journalistic efforts. And I think that the difference in approach with Max and Georgie is really interesting when she's using some of these things to her advantage. How we think of women now, especially with the Me Too campaign and things like that. And I would never, never, as a woman, denigrate women. But it was a different time then. And women were treated quite badly. And so they they had to use other things that were in their in their armory as it were they couldn't just swan into places and demand things so they had to use a different tool I mean I personally I think people use their sexuality each and every day whether you're going to the coffee shop or whether you're you know we all use different things every day to negotiate the world and I think those women were incredibly if you read the biography of Martha Gellhorn I mean it's phenomenal she was a phenomenal woman she was flawed in many ways but aren't we all There's something about this time period as well that seems to be sort of a thread throughout all of your work so far. What is it about writing in this World War II period that inspires you? It's just that thing about how we get through. It's like what we're in the middle of now in the pandemic, we're all thinking we're getting through with Zoom and social media and telephones and you know, we've still got contact, but how people got through when, you know, life was so, or seemed to be so cheap, you know, one minute you could go out to the shops in the middle of war, you might not come back, you know, your aunt might not come back, your granny, your, you know, life was just so tenuous, and yet people just got on with it. So I think I find that tenacity and the spirit of people without being cliched and the, you know, keep calm and carry on, but it's just what people did. I find that that all the little nitty gritty bits of daily life, you know, how do they feed their children? How did they wash their clothes when they had no running water because they'd been bombed out? You know, how would how would you do that? Um, where did all the supplies come from? I'm a bit geeky like that. And and I think that comes across as well, particularly in the character of Reuben. You know, you, you have the stories mostly told from Georgie's perspective, but you also get these moments where Reuben is the narrator. Was it important for you to tell that side of the story as well from from that lens? The whole point of having Georgie and Max go in was a view from the outside and the and the contrast um, and their shock at what they were seeing or their surprise. But it's also from those people living in the fabric of it. How would you feel if suddenly your passport was just taken away? You know, we're all absolutely angry that we can't fly anywhere at the moment because, you know, nobody will let us. Um, we can't fly anywhere or do anything. Imagine if suddenly someone just said, it's just because you're Jewish, just because you were born, not because of what you've done in life or you've been bad or good or whatever, but you were just born and we're going to take this away from you. So I think it's that taking away of liberty that I wanted to get across and how awful that must have been. The whole Holocaust thing is a whole other atrocity in itself. And of course, anybody reading this book will know in hindsight what really happened in the end. And of course, we're all screaming, yes, it was all going to happen. But of course, they didn't know that then. Nobody knew how awful it could get. I think that's something that really stuck with me throughout the whole book is that it really place situates you in this point of almost discovery because you're, you're with Max and Georgie and you're seeing 
you're having the layers unpeeled in front of you of the horrors and it kind of ramps up with the involvement of Casper and his character because he obviously he gets worse as the book goes on what I wanted to know as a reader is how do you decide where the line is when you do introduce those atrocities because there's the facts which we all know with that hindsight but how far do you go when you're writing it to say actually I'm going to preserve some of this for maybe later in the book or I'm just going to leave it out where what's behind that decision Mm, I'm not sure it's really, really that big a decision. I personally, I do epilogues because I hate as a reader myself to be left in the lurch. So I do epilogues. But at the same time, I think there's a point you take your readers to where a their factual knowledge will fill in the rest. So yes, anybody reading about World War Two knows what happened after war broke out and they know you know, how the concentration camps evolved. Um, so I think there's a point where you can assume that people know something about this so that's why I concentrate on the little details and why it's so important like for instance I went to Saxonhausen I made a visit to Saxonhausen to some of the different places and I walked the streets and found the right venues I went and sat in the Adlon and had a cup of tea and I think it's really important to fill in those gaps where readers might not know and then assume they know the rest you know the really public stuff you just said that you went to go and visit all these locations and stuff. Was there anything else involved in the research that you did for this book? The News Chronicle, mainly. So I sat in the British Library with spools and spools of microfish tape. And I went through probably about a year and a half every day, every, every edition, day by day. I mean, there's a good deal of skimming that went on, but I actually saw what was being reported when. So of course, you've got the the lag of the reporting. So Crystal Mark, for instance, happened on one day, but it wasn't till two days later that the world at large knew about it, because you've got the, the travel of the foreign it doesn't go by email, it has to go by train or by telex. And then you've got the lag of the, the world knowing and the the fallout from it so that was really important to find out just what they would have written and they did they did actually have as I put it into the chronicle they had a a bird's eye view of somebody inside Saxonhausen which I was very surprised to see but the chronicle was a great paper it was a really people's paper Um, it championed women it had its recipe section and its dressmaking section but actually it really championed women in jobs as well which was quite uh, quite a thing for those days. You have had, uh, you touched on earlier in the interview, you've had a few different careers as a journalist, as a midwife, two very different careers there, and now as an author. Obviously, journalism has fed into this book. Midwifery has fed into the German midwife. How else do you think that those experiences have helped shape or inform your writing? I think that thing about always having strong female heroes, you will never find me writing a book about women sort of going, ooh, you know, I mean, I love Pride and Prejudice, but they accept that, of course, Elizabeth Bennett is a really, really strong female character. Because of what I've seen women go through 20 years as a midwife, I have seen them scale the heights of strength in so many ways that I will, I will never, never have my main character. There might be peripheral characters, that do other things but my my main female characters will always be fairly strong and tenacious I think. I suppose the sort of last thing to ask you is what's next for you and what are you working on now? So I'm leaving the war behind for the next one that's coming out and, and I'm just doing the final edits on that 
And that is a tale of the Berlin Wall. So I'm sticking with Berlin, punting sort of 15, 20 years ahead to 1961 and 63, which has been really great to write about that early 60s period, but also to do the research on the Berlin Wall. And I managed, again, to get to Berlin just between lockdowns, and uh, which was really important to see various, you know, actually look at the wall as well and see where it was and how it was. So I'm really excited about that. And then I've just started book number five, and that's back to World War II, but a different scenario this time. Not Germany, different different part of the world. 